Welcome back, everybody. We're about a week into 2024. And more important than anything else, if we look at my portfolio performance, I am beating the market by a little under 1%. So nobody touch it or breathe on it for the next 51 weeks. Now, obviously, I'm kidding, because if you look at it for the first week, I'm not even positive. So that's dumb. But in today's video, we have a bunch to talk about, including what we should expect in 2024, if you're listening to the financial news, that is, as well as what went well and not so well for me in my portfolio in 2023 and what I'm going to be doing about it this year. So let's get started. Now, as we start the year, it's always good to reset ourselves and just make sure that we're prepared for another year of daily financial news that tries to get us off course. Okay, so that's probably a little dramatic, but it's not untrue. Case in point, I wanted to play this clip that I watched over the weekend about how one person sees the market for 2024. We've been balanced. What does that mean? It's fully invested. Uh, we picked our spots here or there. Sectors didn't work too well um, for most people, including us, uh, but certainly being dedicated to U.S. large caps uh, for most of the year, if not all of the year, uh, really helped. We haven't changed our tune. Uh, I think it's really important to know that going balanced into next year with still high unpredictability is really important but also staying fully invested, and that's the key. You know, most of the time, time in the markets is much better than timing the markets, and you and I have talked a lot about this over the years, and I'll say this. If you know the wedge in the markets going into a year, uh, you have a very good, reasonable chance of not just outperforming, but staying on goal. What's the wedge last year? Inflation. We got that out of the way. What's the wedge this year? It's probably fiscal restraint. Uh, not to mention geopolitics and politics. If we can get that at bay, uh -huh. then you're talking about high predictability in earnings, margins, real yields declining, yields have peaked, and the Fed is telling us what they're going to do. Okay, so I'm not sure if you caught all the important parts in there. So let's just recap them real quick. Time in the market's greater than timing the market, going balanced but staying fully invested, know the wedge, fiscal restraint, geopolitics, high predictability in earnings and margins, yields have peaked, Fed telling us what they're going to do. What exactly are we supposed to do with this information? Now, I would argue that some of these things actually contradict themselves. Like, we're saying fiscal restraint, but that kind of implies not cutting rates, and yet yields have peaked and the Fed telling us what they want to do kind of implies that they are going to cut rates. It's very confusing. And again, if you're just a normal investor watching this like me, is this even valuable to us? Now, let's listen to the last part of the interview where Chris Wapner asked specifically why he's not more bullish. I'm trying to figure, why aren't you more optimistic, though, right? If you if we if we've come for a pretty long way, right, from where the Fed was to where we are now and where they are, as we learned yet again from the minutes, right, the economy looks like it's progressing towards a soft landing. I mean, obviously not there yet, but that's the bet. And the big bet is that the Fed's going to cut multiple times this year. Who, who knows when that begins. So if rates are going to come down and the economy is going to be pretty decent, earnings, you would figure, would be pretty good, thus justifying a reasonably good multiple. What am I missing? Yeah, you're not missing anything. You've nailed the story. Now you got to talk about what could actually come in that we're all worried about to balance out some of that uber optimism to bring, the, bring us back to earth a little bit and become more of a realist. What's a realist? Seven, eight percent returns in, in stock returns. That's good. We'll take that every year. Uh, bond returns somewhere around what your yield to maturity is. We'll also take that 60, 40 working again. Very much take that. But balancing out by high geopolitical risk, 
U.S. political diversion also could be there. And then ultimately, do we really know what's going to go on with the debt maturity refinancings, particularly in commercial real estate? We don't know yet. We think it's going to be contained. But these are balancing acts and wild cards that could come and go throughout the year. But generally speaking for the year, yeah, I would say we're optimistic. And so, again, there's a lot of sound bites here. But if you look at them all together, it's still a pretty confusing picture. Like he says, you're right that it is a bullish story, but we need to balance out our uber optimism and become a realist. And there's geopolitical risk. And we don't know what the debt maturity refinancing and commercial real estate is going to do. But generally for the year, I would say we're optimistic. I mean, seriously, I truly believe that this is a lot of the problem for everyday investors. There's just so much noise out there that confuses us and plays on our own insecurities about how much we know or how good we are at investing. Now, look, I'm not trying to pick on this guy specifically. He's probably great at what he does. But it's just an example of the type of things we have to deal with and understand as retail investors. And I do agree, we should always look at the other side of an idea and not just be blindly bullish on something. But the issue is that this kind of commentary is saying a lot of words, but not very much that actually helps us. Like, are there specific companies or sectors that might be impacted by these concerns, in his opinion? He said that they're fully invested, so are they actually doing anything different because of these concerns? None of that is really clear. So what normally happens is people get scared and they just don't invest or they try to wait for a time when they're actually sure of something. And here's the problem. That's never going to happen, like probably ever. The future being unknown is part of the risk premium we get for investing in stocks. We're betting on the probabilities of the market overall or the companies that we've researched doing what we expect. But it's never a guarantee and it never will be. So worrying about everything you hear and read usually has a negative effect on our investment returns, either because A, it makes us hesitant to where we don't invest at all, or B, it makes you take on investments that maybe you normally wouldn't because you're expecting some macro event to happen. And to be honest, I actually fell into this trap a little bit last year, which brings me to my recap of what went well and not so well for my portfolio in 2023. So how I fell into this trap last year was focusing too much on the potential recession outlook and what it would mean for U.S. stocks. And I'll give you three specific examples of where I did that, and we'll talk about each one. So first, there was buying Walmart. Second, passing on Lululemon. And third, passing on Texas Roadhouse. Let's go ahead and talk about Walmart, because I did a whole video about how I shouldn't have bought it in the first place. And bottom line is because Walmart didn't actually fit my investment strategy. Yes, it has a wide moat. Yes, it was generating increase in cash flow, but it's had pretty poor dividend growth. And in general, it's either lagged or simply matched the S&P 500. But as a customer, I liked a lot about what Walmart was doing with their increased pickup and delivery services, their mobile app updates and Walmart Plus subscription, and their increasing third-party platform and advertising business. Plus, they had a documented strategy to generate earnings and cash flow higher than revenues, which I assumed would manifest itself into higher dividend growth. But here's the deal. A lot of why I was interested in Walmart last year is because I really did think that a recession or some kind of prolonged economic slowdown was going to happen in the U.S. And it's partially why I sold lows earlier in the year as well. And look, Walmart isn't a bad stock, but it's a bad fit for my general strategy and was probably a poor decision on my part to add it at the time. And now that's not to say that we should never add stocks to our portfolio that don't fit our strategy, because obviously, if we have an idea and we want to see it through, that's totally fine. 
But in my case, I kept saying that I wanted to wait until February to see where their dividend raise was. And in reality, it was more about being a strong choice in a recession scenario as opposed to hoping for a long-term hold with sustained dividend growth that outpaces inflation. Because the chance of that happening based on the last decade of history is slim to none. Plus, to add insult to injury, I analyzed Costco in November and I had a buy rating on it even at $555, but I didn't plan to add it to my portfolio due to the overlap with Walmart, which I already held. Now, obviously, right now I would argue that Walmart likely has some upside and Costco, as great as it is, probably has some reversion to the mean to do with how much it's risen up. But still, Costco is up about 20% since I analyzed it in November and Walmart's down almost 5%. And in case you're wondering, once I thought through this whole thing, I actually decided not to wait till February and I sold my Walmart position last week. But more on that in my next portfolio recap. So next, Lululemon. Now, I evaluated them in September and I love their business and operational performance. Their valuation was definitely high based on traditional valuation methods and they don't actually pay a dividend. But one of the primary reasons that I had a hold rating on it was, again, I figured that recession issues were likely to push premium brands like Lululemon down a bit. So I just kind of ignored them. And they're up about 23% since. And then lastly, Texas Roadhouse. Now, I evaluated them in October, and overall, I really like their business. But my downgrade of their business rating from good to just okay, and their hold rating overall was almost entirely driven by uncertainty in the economy and the impact that it might have on their core value proposition. Now, it shot up 25% since. And look, obviously, economic factors and recessions are definitely risks for these companies that we need to consider as investors. But if your plan is to hold a company for the long term, then I question how much we should really worry about it in the short term. If you find a good business that's fairly valued, worrying about macro factors that may never come is probably not the best approach. And at least it wasn't for me in 2023. Now, we can always go back and look at a bunch of stocks that we analyzed that didn't do what we expected. That's pretty normal when you're picking stocks. But I think the point here is that we want to look back at the decisions that we made with fresh eyes so that we can evaluate ourselves and find ways to improve. But that also includes acknowledging the things that actually went well. And for me, when I combine my analysis of businesses with better patience as it relates to their valuation, it really produced the best results in 2023. Now, if you look at the top four performers of my portfolio, they tell that story. American Express, United Health Group, Caterpillar, and Valero. They were all my best performers and the stocks that had the best valuations at the time that I actually bought them. Now, in other cases like Apple, Visa, and Starbucks, I completely believe in their businesses long term, but they weren't really at great valuations whenever I added them. And the returns show that so far. Now, I've said many times that I obviously look at valuation, but I don't always treat it as a primary criteria. And I know that that's different from a lot of other folks on YouTube, and that's totally okay. Part of the reason why I don't do that anymore is because it prevented me from buying great businesses in the past. So now that's why I say the most important thing to get right about a stock is the quality of the business. And over the long term, they're going to do well regardless of what we feel about their valuation. Now, there's plenty of examples of this in both directions. Costco and Microsoft are probably two of the easiest examples of companies that routinely trade for high valuations but still outperform. And there's plenty of value trap examples out there where the quote-unquote fundamentals look good from a value perspective, but the business and thus the stock price are really going nowhere. So really, the best approach is finding great businesses and then having the patience to wait to buy until they're at good to fair valuations. And when I did that in 2023, it tended to work out the best. And I know you're probably like, well, yeah, of course that's what you should be doing. 
But like most people, even if we know things, sometimes we don't always execute on them as well as we want to. So in terms of what I'm doing to try to be better in 2024 than I was in 2023, I'm going to focus more on companies that meet my personal strategy, ignore general macro concerns or issues for long-term holds, and be more patient about when I buy to take advantage of unexpected dips. Now, none of these are some groundbreaking revelation, right? They're just small tweaks to my personal approach that keep promoting the basic fundamentals. So we'll see how well I do with it throughout the year and if it helps my overall performance. So what went well and maybe not so well for you guys in 2023? Let me know in the comments below. Now, if you want to learn more about how having your own personal investment strategy can help you pick stocks, click on this video right here. Hope you guys have a great day out there. Financial independence is true freedom. So keep building and stacking wins. And I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace.